right, good morning. Good to see all of you here today. And um, I'm preaching in the place of Jacob because he's not here. No, wait a minute, he is here. <laughs> no, I'm just giving him a hard time. Um, we're going to be looking at the idea of attitude. Attitude. And we're going to be looking at Philippians chapter 2, looking at verses 1 through 13. And I want to start by telling you of a time when I was younger. I was still in college. I was working for a particular company. And there was this one particular employee who got hired. And he started annoying everyone. Okay. Um, and it got to the point that he said this phrase over and over. And it sort of became an inside type of joke. Um, he would say things, whenever you talked to him, he knew about everything, okay? He knew how to do everything, he knew how to do it better than you, and everything else. And he would say things like, well, all you gotta do is, and then fill in the blank, okay? And so it got to the point where we would just reiterate that phrase, well, all you gotta do is. And it was just over and over and over. Have you ever met anybody with an attitude who thinks they know everything, and they constantly are telling you how to do things better and that you're wrong and that they're just awesome. You know, God has brought them into your life to tell you exactly how to live your life and tell you how to do your job, raise your family and everything else. Well, that's the idea of having an attitude. How many of us have ever told our children, stop the attitude, right? Quit the attitude. So what we want to do is we want to focus on this idea of attitude. And the main verse actually is in Philippians chapter 5, or chapter 2, verse 5. And I want us to highlight that. It's on the next slide for us here, Sean, if you will. Here we are. This is the main point of what we're talking about this morning, all right? The main point is when the Apostle Paul writes to the Philippians here in chapter 2, verse 5, and he says, Make your own attitude that of Christ Jesus. Make your own attitude that of Christ Jesus. Now, the question for us is, what does that attitude look like? And the Apostle Paul is going to explain that to us in our passage today in verses 1 through 13. And so the main point, or the first point for us to consider when we're thinking about this main point about our attitudes, we need to think in terms of humility. Now, that's actually the main, main point here, is that it's about our attitude as opposed to be as Jesus' attitude. And how was that attitude? That attitude was one of humility. And that's captured here in verses 3 and 4 of Philippians 2, where it says, Do nothing out of rivalry or conceit, but in humility consider others as more important than yourselves. Everyone should look out not for only his own interests, but also the interests of of others. Now, what I want to do is I want to pause here and I want to take a look at some of these phrases that I've highlighted and that I'm emphasizing here. First of all, do nothing out of, let's go back to the previous slide there, Sean, for us. Uh, do nothing out of rivalry or conceit. Now, if we just pause and think for a moment, when we are prideful, when we are boastful, when we puff ourselves up and we think highly of ourselves, what ends up happening? We start having fights, don't we? Because we think that our position is better than somebody else's. My thoughts are better than somebody else's. And so what ends up happening is you get factions. You have one group over here, and you got another group over here, and you start having these rivalries. And conceit develops within us. 
And in fact, this is one of the main themes throughout the New Testament. The Apostle Paul is constantly telling his readers, his listeners, that we need to have humility and we need to quit dividing up into factions. If we were to look at a survey, we could um, look very easily at 1 Corinthians, and probably the whole book of 1 Corinthians, in fact. If we know anything about 1 Corinthians or the Corinthian church, we know that there were factions. There were problems in that church. And the Apostle Paul begins in chapter 1 where he talks about some of you are claiming to follow Apollos. Some of you are claiming to follow um, the Apostle Peter. Some of you are claiming to follow the Apostle Paul. You see, they've divided themselves up into factions and rivalries. And the root cause of that is pride. It has to do with our attitude. We're having the wrong attitude toward each other and others. The command here for us is, as the phrase there that's highlighted in the word, it says, but in humility, consider others as more important than yourselves. Now, is this an easy thing to do? One of the points I want to stress this morning is I think this is probably the most difficult thing to do. And it is probably the root of our sinful problems. The root of our sinful problems is that we are prideful. As a very foundation, if we do any kind of self-reflection and we do any introspection at all, we come to find out that we think we are awesome. That's what it comes down to. That, you know, think about your quarrels that you have with your spouse. Think about the conflicts you may have with people in your uh, work environment. Think about the conflicts that you may have with your, your siblings, right? Whatever kind of conflict that you probably have, it ultimately comes down to that either both of you or one of you are having a pride issue, and usually it's probably both. There is a sense in which we think we have to defend our own position, and our position is the right one. Everybody else is wrong. In a very short sense, we could say that what we are trying to do, our root problem is that we're trying to make ourselves God. We are prideful. But the Apostle Paul is saying here for us, and, and to the Philippians there at the time uh, in that church, think of others more important than yourself. We ought to be thinking of our spouses, our neighbors, each other in our church here together. We need to be thinking of others as more important than ourselves. Because as we're going to see here in a few minutes, that was the attitude Christ had. And he's the exemplar of that. We're going to get to that in just a minute. But let's not think for a moment, though, that somehow we have to demean ourselves or destroy ourselves, have no reputation whatsoever. Because notice what Paul says there in the next verse 4. Everyone should look out not only for his own interests. So you can look out for your own interests, right? We need to take care of ourselves. Certainly we need to eat. We need to have food. We need to do things and manage things in our lives. But we need to look out for the interests of others. We need to kill, as I've mentioned in a, in a previous series on the Sermon on the Mount, we need to kill our ego. We must humble ourselves. I like how um, C.S. Lewis put it in uh, his book, The Problem of Pain. Okay, I've got the quote up here on the screen for us to follow along. He says, it, now that's in reference to pride, okay? It is committed daily by young children 
and ignorant peasants, as well as by sophisticated persons, by solitaries no less than by those who live in society. It is the fall in every individual life and in each day of each individual life. The basic sin behind all particular sins, at this very moment, you and I are committing it or about to commit it or repenting it. I think there's a lot of truth to that. If there is any theme from Genesis 1-1 all the way to the end of Revelation, it's the idea that we think we can make ourselves God. That we as individual subjects are in charge. That, and we are prideful. We think of ourselves as number one. We remember Genesis 1, don't we? I mean, that was the essence of the temptation that Satan presented before Adam and Eve, wasn't it? If you take and eat of this fruit, you will become as God. You will become as God. So we actually have a choice, just like Adam and Eve had a choice. And this is actually a theme within the Christian author C.S. Lewis's works. And he says, he capitalizes the word choice, capital C. And he says, we have this choice, this either or that confronts us. He says, we can either, when we get up in the morning, choose God or self. The parallel of that is we can choose joy or misery. And we can choose heaven or we can choose hell. Now, these are all parallel to each other. Because if we're going to choose the self, what does that ultimately lead to? It will lead to misery. Because it's a life without God. It's us taking the throne, the place of God. And ultimately, that will bring us to the eternal consequence of hell. In the book um, on the Christian life, uh, that's talking about C.S. Lewis, the author, Joe Rigney, puts it this way. He says, God is pursuing you. He's hunting you, laying total claim to your life. Let's pause this for a moment. You see... Sometimes I think it's easy to fall into this mindset that as a Christian, Christ is just sort of tacked onto our life. God, as long will be happy with me and blessed by my presence as long as I'm just, you know, thinking of him, praying with him every once in a while, or coming to church on Sunday, whatever, maybe fill in the blank. But one thing that we have to realize is that God wants all of us. He wants everything. It's, it's an all-or-nothing game with Jesus. So God is pursuing us. He's hunting us. He wants to lay total claim of our entire life. And he is offering you life and joy and blessedness. Let's pause for a minute and think about that sentence. You see, God is not pursuing us and wanting us to follow him. He's not wanting to save us to make our lives miserable to come up with some sort of checklist to make sure that we're following commandments and doing all the right things. No, he wants to actually give us his own goodness, his own joy, his blessedness, which only can come through him. The author goes on to say he's offering you himself. And so the choice, capital C, confronts you. Receive God or cling to yourself and try to be God. That's the ultimate choice we have. And the thing that we are being reminded of here in Philippians 
is that we need to lay aside ourselves. We need to think of other people as more important. And Paul goes on to tell us who this wonderful person who exemplifies this attitude, this, this idea of humility that we are to take on. The exemplar of humility is Jesus himself. Now, within this little passage here, these, these six verses or so, this is actually known to be an early Christian hymn. They didn't actually necessarily sing, sing it, but they at least memorized it, and they would repeat it to each other. And it encapsulates very well who Jesus is in his very nature and what he did and how he lived. And Paul is calling us to reflect this, reflect Jesus. Now, I have some phrases I want to emphasize here. Look what we have in verses 6 through 8. It's talking about Jesus, who, existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be used for his own advantage. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a slave, taking on the likeness of men. Let's pause there for a minute. Jesus, before he came to earth, he existed as God. He is God. Think about this for a minute. And this is, a, you know, this is the essence of what's being said here. We have the Son of God. He's on his heavenly throne, ruling with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. He's the one who has created the universe. He's the one who has taken an active part in creating us. And he says, I will willingly leave this abode of the divine throne room, if you will, and I will become a human being. I will take on flesh. I will consider myself a servant. I will become a creation. Something that I came out of my own head with, my own design. I'm going to become one of those types. And when he came, the idea, and when he took on the flesh, Paul uses the phrase, he emptied himself. Now, some people get the idea that, you know, kind of envision a pitcher of water, and that when Jesus came, he sort of emptied all that divinity or that God nature out of himself. That's not the idea. When it says that he emptied himself, the idea is that he took on humanity and considered not to exercise his divine attributes to the extent that he could have. What he decided to do is become exactly like one of us. In the form of a slave, one who obeys a master, in this case, God the Father. And he became just like us. In verse 9, it goes on to say this. And, we had, and when he had come as a man in his external form, and here's, here's the point, right, that we're focusing on. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now, what's interesting here is obedience. Christ humbled himself. He came in a lower form. He took on flesh, became a human being. And part of that humility was being obedient to God. Obedient to the Father. When he came, he obeyed everything. There was no sin in his life. He followed every single commandment, every single ritual, Every single thing that was ever commanded throughout the Old Testament for those Israelites and Jewish people to follow. But even more than that, 
Notice what Paul says. He became obedient to the point of death. Point of death. You know, Paul talks about elsewhere. You know, anybody would probably, possibly, maybe, die for a righteous person. But who would die for someone who's a sinner? Who would die for someone unrighteous? But that's what Jesus did. A perfect human being died for us as sinners to the point that he was even separated from the Father on that cross. Being forsaken because he took our sin on that cross. Jesus is our exemplar of humility. That's the kind of attitude we are to have. We need to look at our neighbors and think, if that person needs help, you observe they need help, that you have something planned, you're getting ready to get in your car, what kind of attitude should we have? You know what, I'm going to take five minutes out and say that person's okay. I'm going to lay down my life and push off the schedule a little bit. If I'm going to be late, whoever it is, they need to understand. And if they don't, well, I'll explain it to them, but I serve Jesus. We need to have this reflection of the exemplar of humility, Jesus Christ. So we don't exalt ourselves, and that's the easy thing to do, isn't it? Exalting ourselves. But our attitude is to be one of humility. Because do you know who does the exalting? God does. God will do the exalting. We don't have to consider, gee, I'm not getting enough attention. I want to be the focus here. I, I want somebody to pay attention to me. That's not our position to do. Our position isn't to stand up and yell from the mountaintops, look at me, you know, I've got these great ideas or something. Our position is to be humble, to be one of a servant as Jesus was because God will do the exalting. This is what he did for Jesus. Look at Philippians 2, 9 through 11 here. For this reason, God highly exalted him, God the Father, and gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. And look at the next uh, couple verses here. Of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Because Jesus humbled himself. He was obedient. He followed every jot and tittle that God the Father wanted him to do. And he was a servant. He didn't exalt himself. He followed through with the Lord's plan. God highly exalted him. And of course, he had a unique position of being exalted too, right? Something that's going to be radically different than our position will ever be. Because he is God the Son who died on the cross and conquered death through his resurrection. But our attitude should be of the same. You know, when I think about... Um, this idea of exalting ourselves and how we typically uh, exalt ourselves rather than allowing God to do his work. I think of James and John. Remember them, and James and John? And their mother, their mother went to Jesus. Let's take a look at the passage here, Matthew 20, verses 20 to 28. Look here, this, this, this is so typical of all of us, isn't it? Then the mother of Zebedee's sons approached him with her sons. She now bound to ask him for something. What do you want? He asked her. Promise, she said to him, that these two sons of mine may sit, one on your right hand and the other on your left, in your kingdom. 
You know, we, it's easy to kind of be hard on her. Wow, right? that's pretty that's pretty bold, right? That's pretty prideful. That's pretty puppy and arrogant, right? But you know what? I think we probably all sort of, if we look at our interior motivations, we want the same thing, don't we? And sometimes we get caught up into thinking that somehow we have some special blessed place in God's kingdom. Now, don't get me wrong. We are blessed to be in God's kingdom. We do have a special place in God's kingdom. But we're not in the special place of God's kingdom. <laughs> Look at how Jesus answers. But Jesus answered, you don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I'm about to drink? Now, there's a lot here that we could unpack. Because look, look at the bold claim and how they respond. We are able, they said to him. <laughs> of course, the, the, the cup he was talking about was his crucifixion. Verse 23, he told them, you will indeed drink my cup. In other words, you know, they will be martyred for behalf of their faith in him. But to sit at my right and my left is not mine to give. Instead, it belongs to those for whom it has been prepared. By whom? My father. The father exalts. Not us. We are not to be pursuing that throne at the, at the wonderful, most awesome seat at the table. Look on what Jesus says there, verse 24. When the ten disciples heard this, they became indignant with the two brothers. See what happens when you come up and prideful? Rivalry, conceit, division, factions. But Jesus called them over and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles dominate them, and the men of high position exercise power over them. It must not be like that among you. On the contrary, whoever wants to become great among you must be what? Must be a certain, in other words, humble. And whoever wants to be first among you must be your slave. You know, this isn't just radical language for our time. This is radical language for their time. This is offensive language today, isn't it? Of course it is. It was offensive then and it's just offensive now. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. If Jesus left his abode in heaven and came to earth and took on flesh and died on a cross for us, surely we can give up something of ourselves for our spouse. Surely we can give up something of ourselves for our workers, people that we work with, our colleagues, people in our family, each other even. But the question becomes, ultimately, why should we be humble? I sort of already referred to this, but it's emphasized in verses 1 to 2 of this passage, which I intentionally skipped over because this is actually the reason why Paul writes to the Philippians about being humble. And so now I want to bring this sort of full circle and show us the reasons why we're being commanded to do this. Philippians 2, 1 to 2, if then there is any encouragement in Christ, if any consolation of love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by thinking the same way, having the same love, sharing the same feelings, focusing on one goal. What, now, what's similar with all those phrases there that I've emphasized? One. Oneness. It's about unity and this theme runs throughout the new testament all over the place 
The reason why we are to have an attitude of Christ in regard to what's being commanded here in Philippians is so that it brings unity. We are to have the same mindset. Now, that doesn't mean we have to agree with every jot and tittle of how we view life and view everything, right? The idea is this. We are all intent in one mind that we are out to save the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. We are all united, and we are all the same because we are united by the blood of Jesus Christ. Our faith in him, that's what unites us. That is what brings us oneness. We are to share, I don't know if you noticed that, that phrase there, but have the same feelings. That's how this translation puts it. Some other translations put it in different ways, but I like that because the idea is that if we are going through hard times, guess what we get to do with one another? We get to share in that together. We don't get to say, look, you know, well, I've been like that. That's tough. I'm sorry for you. I'll pray for you. And move on with the life, right? <laughs> we share in those terrible emotions and feelings with that person. We become a servant. We become less of ourselves and put ourselves to the side. And we engage that person. We engage each other. We are to have a humble attitude because it brings about unity. Paul emphasizes this in chapter 1. Just one thing. <clears throat> Live your life in a manner... Notice how he puts this. This is pretty, pretty strong. Live your life in a manner worthy of the gospel. Well, he makes this like almost... Well, he does. No, almost. A gospel issue. Then whether I come and see you or am absent, I will hear about you that you are standing firm in what? One spirit, one mind, working side by side. For the faith that comes from the gospel. So why are we to take on this attitude of humility? Like Jesus, the exemplar of humility? Because we are to be united. Now, I'm going to get a little uncomfortable, maybe a little awkward for some of you here, okay? In my little smirk is because... That's how I react sometimes when I get a little uncomfortable. You ever do that? It's just like, you want to shake it kind of off and be like, <laughs> But this is serious business. <clears throat> the thought that's being laid out here, as well as in other New Testament letters, is totally upside down from our culture. What does our culture want to do? It wants to focus on, I'm going to use, I'm going to use their own word, all right? This is going to get canceled. It's a good time. <laughs> they want to focus on diversity. Now, there's nothing wrong with recognizing that we're diverse. I get that. You know, we all get that. And we also know that because of that, there are evils in the world. I'm not, this, I'm not saying that that's not the case. I'm not, I'm not someone who's like that. I, I, I totally observe the sinfulness in our world. But here's, here's what I'm trying to say. And this is what Paul is saying. He's saying, focus on your unity. That is the main problem with humanity because it's all based on your pride. Why are there wars throughout the human history? Why are there all these factions and divorces and things that we go through that are just terrible? Because we don't get along with each other. Why don't we get along with each other? Because we want to be our own God. We're prideful. One of the main things that runs throughout the text of the New Testament. I can't say this enough. 
is that God wants us to lay ourselves aside and be humble so that we come together as one. You know that the, the only kind of emphasis of diversity in the Bible, you know what it's actually focused on? Spiritual gifts. That's the only kind of diversity it's focused on. Now, secondarily, there is a little bit of diversity of how all nations, right, people of all tongues and tribes come to Christ, but it's always focused on the idea of bringing about unity and coming together as one in Jesus. Look at what Ephesians chapter 2 here says for us, 11 to 22. I know this is a long passage, so I won't give a whole lot of commentary on it, but we need to focus on this because this is amazing. This is just another example of Paul focusing us in our attention on how we need to Look at being united, not divided. So then, remember that at one time, you were Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcised by those who called the circumcised, which is done in the flesh by human hands. He's making the idea here between Jews and non-Jews, or Israelites and non-Israelites. At that time, you were without the Messiah, or Christ, excluded from the citizenship of Israel, and foreigners to the covenants of the promise without hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who are far away have been what? Brought near by the blood of Christ, or the blood of the Messiah, as this translation says. For he is our peace who made both groups one. And tore down what? The dividing wall, and look how he describes that dividing wall, hostility. That's what we see in our culture, hostility. But in Jesus Christ, that gets obliterated. In his flesh, he made of no effect the law consisting of commands and expressed in regulations so that he might create in himself, what? One new man from the two, resulting in what? Peace. This is upside down from our culture, isn't it? He did this so that he might reconcile both to God in one body through the cross and put the hostility to death. When the Messiah came, he proclaimed the good news of peace to you who are far away and peace to those who are near. For through him we both have access by one spirit to the Father. So why be humble? Because it unites why have the attitude like Christ? Because it unites us. We are to be one, of one mind, one spirit, one goal. But the text also tells us here in Philippians that it's not just about unity when we are humble and take on this attitude of Christ, but we also come to the idea that we are changed. This is another reason why we are to be humble, for change. Look at uh, Philippians chapter 2. 12 to 13 says for us. So then, my dear, our dear friends, just as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now even more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is working in you, enabling you both to desire and to work out his good purpose. Now let's focus on this for a second. When we, when we, can, when we look at this, we consider these last two verses. Where it says work out your own salvation a lot of times this could give us the impression that somehow this means to um you know we we need to somehow work for our salvation and make sure we keep it right um and so in some way 
you know, we got God's grace, but we're tacking on to that. And we get to also add and make sure that we're saved. But that's not what he's saying, because there are plenty of other texts in the New Testament that teach us very plainly that we are saved by grace and not works. And actually, I'm going to share that verse with you here in a few minutes. So what is Paul actually saying here? Well, think of it this way. If you're, if you're told to work out your body, right? You go to the gym. I'm so puffed, right? <laughs> um, does that mean that somehow you have to obtain your body first and then you work out? No, you already have your body. You're just working it out, right? So that's kind of the idea here. You already have your salvation. You're just working it out. That is, you're exercising your salvation. Okay, that's what he means here. Work out your salvation. Because why? Because in verse 13, it tells us two things. It is God who is working in you, enabling you both to desire and to work out his good, uh, good purpose. So ultimately, it is God who's actually working in you. You're just exercising that out in your life. Through how and, and, and how? By doing good deeds, bearing fruit for Jesus, bearing fruit for God. And notice, it's not just about bearing fruit and doing good works. Did you notice that first part of the last phrase? To desire and to work out his good purposes. The desire is your will. It's the essence of, in a, in a very real sense, of who you are. So why are we to be humble like Jesus? Why are we to have this attitude? So one, to bring about unity in the body of Christ. And two, so that we will be changed more into the image of Christ. Take a look at a couple verses here. In 2 Corinthians 5.17, one of my favorite verses, um, <clears throat> talks about how we are changed when we come to be incorporated into Christ. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. And look, new things have come. I know when we read this, it may seem a little abstract or you know, kind of floating around out there. But this is something real. You may not see it with your own two eyes, you know, it actually happening. But when we are saved, the Holy Spirit regenerates us. That's just a nice theological term to say, making us new. Jesus said in John chapter 3, when he's talking to Nicodemus, he says it is born again. This is something literally happening to us. We are made new. Why? Romans 8, 29. For those whom God foreknew, he also predestined to be what? Conformed to the image of his son. And the image here isn't the physical image. Now, there's a lot of truth that that actually ain't going to happen as well. But the idea is to who he is. We need to be humble. Why? So we can be changed. If we are continuously puffing ourselves up, if we're continually being prideful, are we going to be allowing God and his Holy Spirit to work in our lives to make us like Jesus? No, we're getting in the way, aren't we? Then Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. For we are his creation, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared ahead of time so that we would walk in them. Now this follows on the heels of two more verses that actually starts out by saying, for it is by grace you have been saved, and this is not of yourselves, so that no one may boast. The idea is this. We aren't saved by good works, but we're saved for good works. 
So when we go back to that verse in Philippians chapter 2, and Paul says, work out your own salvation, the idea is we are saved to work for God, not ourselves. We are to be humble servants, slaves of the Lord Jesus. So what was the main point? We have a choice, right? Capital C, either or. Either we're going to make our attitude like Jesus's, which is one of humility, or we'll put ourselves continually on the throne. And you know, through my studies, my introspection, the older I get, even though I may not be that old as some of you, I get that. The more I realize this is my main problem. I've got a pride issue. I think I'm cool. You know, I think I'm awesome. Um, and I'm not. God's awesome. And when he works in me, then I can do good things. <clears throat> God will do the exalting. We need to make our attitude that of Christ Jesus. And when we do, when we are humble, we become unified. And we become changed. Let's have a prayer together. Our God in heaven, as we consider your words here in this text, it can be so difficult. I really am convinced by the study of your word and that the main problem that we have as humans is we have pride. We have our own personal agendas. I see it probably every day in my own life. We ask that your Holy Spirit will continually drive it out of us. We know this won't come to completion until Jesus returns and you perfect it. But between now and then, the journey, please continue to work on it. We want to be united. We want to love each other. We really do. And in those moments where I know that I feel like I really don't want to be united. I don't like that person. Please, I ask the Holy Spirit, not only for me, but for all of us, will convict us once again and drive that attitude out of us. Help us to have the attitude of humility. We want to be changed by your Holy Spirit, and we want to live for you. And it can be so difficult, Lord. And because of that, oh God, I'm so thankful for the grace that you give to us in Jesus. Because we do fail, your blood of your son, it just covers us. Thank you so much, Lord. We do have freedom.